This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. It has been three years since state officials announced New Hampshire's first case of COVID-19. Paul Kuno Booth covers the health and equity beat for NHPR. He joins us now to talk about the pandemic's lingering effects here on Granite Staters and the state's workforce specifically. Good morning, Paul. Morning. So, Paul, where are we right now in this phase of the pandemic? Yeah, so I, I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anyone to say a, a lot has changed in three years. Um, most of the population now has some level of immunity to COVID, whether through um, previous infection, vaccines, or a combination of both. We also have better treatments, things like Paxlovid, which which really cut the rate of um, severe disease for, for people at risk. Um, so already, you know, this winter, we didn't see the kind of massive surge in hospitalizations and deaths that we saw the last two years. Um, but the virus does continue to circulate. Here is Dr. Benjamin Chan, the state epidemiologist, earlier this week. We still have people every day in New Hampshire being hospitalized and treated for COVID-19. We still have um, currently one to two people per day dying from COVID-19. And we're still dealing with various other impacts from the last three years. Um, staff shortages at hospitals, rising mental health challenges, um, some people will have, you know, lingering physical symptoms from um, from long COVID. And, you know, about 3,000 Granite Staters have lost their lives. So there are a lot of people dealing with the loss of, of friends and loved ones. And we've heard the word endemic now thrown around a lot, Paul. That's, that's the point when a disease can persist indefinitely, but it's no longer a major emergency. Are we really in that endemic phase now? So this is certainly where the people I spoke to think we're, we're headed with this. Um, in other words, they expect the virus to be with us indefinitely, continue circulating, continue causing sickness and hospitalization. Um, it may spike every winter like flu and some other respiratory diseases. But as we said, it, it has become more manageable. We have better tools to, to prevent and, and treat it. So the doctors I spoke to said we're, we're probably headed for a world where we treat it like some of those other illnesses, you know, get an annual booster each fall, take basic precautions if you get sick, like staying home and masking. Um, and if you do uh, wind up in the hospital, hopefully there there are these better treatments to to deal with it at this point. Much like the seasonal flu is, is at this point. Uh, yeah, burnout and staffing shortages are, are perennial issues with the healthcare workforce here in New Hampshire. They certainly were even before the pandemic, but but it really exasperated those longstanding problems. Is the healthcare workforce recovering? Um, what, you know, what's it look like three years after the pandemic began? So it doesn't look great, honestly. Um, hospitals say they're experiencing one of the most challenging periods since the pandemic began, um, and that's because of these staffing shortages. Um, you know, workforce, as you said, was was already an issue before COVID, but but it's gotten a lot worse. Uh, a lot of people left healthcare entirely or retired early. Um, hospitals recently said the vacancy rate for registered nurses has gone from something like nine percent to eighteen percent. Um, so hospitals are really struggling with uh, high vacancy rates. They're paying a lot of money for sort of temporary staffing. And at the same time, they're seeing pent up demand. Um, a lot of people delayed care for chronic conditions during the pandemic. Other respiratory viruses like flu have also come back in full force now. Um, and then on the back end, you know, nursing homes have their own staffing issues and, and have had to limit their capacity. So a lot of hospitals can't discharge patients when they're ready for that lower level of care. Um, so all this is combining to really max out hospital capacity and and lead to longer wait times for for patients. Yeah, and of course, this like the lingering effects will just uh, the, the long tail here will keep going. What what are some of the other long term impacts of the pandemic that's that's we're seeing in the healthcare system? 
So I think one, and again, this relates to the workforce issue, is just the um, the, the impact of all this, the burnout, the trauma on the healthcare workforce, um, as well as you know on on the population at large. You know, one um, maybe silver lining uh, that that folks mentioned, telehealth uh, was was widely adopted during the the pandemic, and and that's probably here to stay. That's a big. Uh, positive for expanding access to healthcare. So there will probably be some of those those innovations that that we were forced to adopt by necessity that that turn out to be useful. Now you alluded earlier to the fact that mental health conditions have actually worsened for many people, and you reported earlier this week that the state's practice of temporarily boarding mental health patients in ERs has been deemed illegal. Can you tell us a little more about that case and what's led up to this? So New Hampshire has long had an issue with patients who are in a mental health crisis being held in ERs until space opens up for them in in an appropriate treatment facility. And and this goes back to the state just not having enough mental health beds to meet the need. This was, uh, of course, exacerbated in the pandemic between rising mental health challenges and also some of these staffing issues we've talked about. Um, And and so this ruling comes in a, a ongoing federal lawsuit um, the hospitals intervened in this lawsuit and essentially said, look, the state has a responsibility to immediately transfer these patients to appropriate mental health care, right? Some have to stay in the ER for days or even weeks. Um, and the hospitals were arguing, you know, this is essentially the state um, taking over some of our resources, some of our capacity for for what ultimately is a state responsibility. Um, and, and a judge agreed and said, yes, this was a, a legal seizure of a hospital of the hospital's property and, and needs to end. So what was the judge's reasoning, though, legal reasoning when she ruled that the practice was illegal? Yeah, so this is uh, it gets a bit technical, but essentially the the hospitals were raising a constitutional claim under the Fourth Amendment, which outlaws um, you know, unreasonable uh, seizures of property. The hospitals were saying, you know, we are having to house these patients because the state can't. That means, you know, we don't have free use of those resources to to treat other patients, right. um, again, contributing to these capacity issues we've been talking about. So, so Paul, what did the hospitals and the Department of Health and Human Services need to know to do now, according to this this judge's ruling? So the judge didn't immediately put an end to this practice. Um, she essentially said, you know, work it out. She gave them a timeline to start coming up with, um, you know, a process to do this, to either come to some sort of agreed upon resolution or or if not, you know, submit their own sort of proposals. Um, so uh, w- we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. Okay. Man, HBR's Paul Kunabu, thank you so much. Thank you. It is Morning Edition here on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news. What questions do you have about what's been going on in the state? Please email us and let us know. Add your voice to voices at nhpr.org. I want to turn our attention now to the New Hampshire Department of Justice. They've been pursuing a civil rights case against a white supremacist group active in New England. It's called NSC 131. That group appeared in court this week, and NHPR's senior reporter Todd Bookman has been covering the case. He joins us now. Hi, Todd. Good morning, Rick. Last month, Todd, nearly a dozen businesses and a Jewish temple in Portsmouth were vandalized with hate messages. And there have been other similar incidences throughout New England in recent years. How many of these incidences are isolated versus organized? And what do we what do we know about it? Yeah, we we, we don't really know much. It's hard to say um, what's isolated, what is organized. We, we've certainly seen plenty of sort of these one-off acts of vandalism. Uh, the swastikas in Portsmouth that you mentioned, there were swastikas found in Hopkinton last year. Um, a church in West Merlin was defaced. We've seen online threats made against uh, New Hampshire state lawmakers, a business owner in Franklin um, who is Jewish was targeted. 
you know, we can think of those as isolated incidents and um, there haven't been any arrests made in those cases, at least that I'm aware of. So, uh, you know, but I don't think they feel isolated. They feel more like a pattern or at least, uh, you know, the result of an increased willingness by people to voice their bias or to, or to take action. And we know that the statistics, you know, bear this out, that the numbers uh, of reported crimes are on the rise, crimes of bias. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in the past few years, an organized group has emerged in the region, NSC-131. Um, let me clarify, you know, there's no evidence that that group or its members were involved in any of, of the acts of vandalism that I, that I just mentioned. But it's clear that the group has mobilized. They have a presence online. They have a presence in the streets. And, you know, it has become sort of the public face for white supremacy in New England uh, for a lot of people. And that's caught the eye of law enforcement, including Attorney General John Formello. We're now seeing groups come into the state and um, organize more widespread attempts to, I think, target people based on on their background. And that's what's different than before. So, so tell us, Todd, more about this case of the Justice Department's been pursuing against NSC-131. Sure. So this this is revolving around a specific incident, and this um, happened last summer in Portsmouth. Essentially, a group of members allegedly of NSC-131 trespassed onto a bridge in Portsmouth, and they attached a banner to a fence. That banner read, uh, Keep New England White. Uh, the state claims that the group didn't have permission to hang the banner uh, and that it trespassed to do so and that it was motivated by racial animus and because of sort of that combination of facts that it, in fact, violated the state's Civil Rights Act. Uh, the group counters that it has free speech rights. Um, this week, we had the first hearing. It was just a preliminary hearing, but it was certainly an interesting scene. Um, about 10 members of the group came to show support for the two defendants who were named in the case. They were sort of in the in the front rows of the courtroom dressed in matching outfits. They often will, will appear in public wearing khakis and black shirts. Uh, the sheriff's office was there with, with canines in the courtroom just before the judge entered. That That's certainly not something I've ever seen before in a superior court hearing. Um, but then the matter itself was pretty low key. It was, again, just a preliminary hearing. The most interesting thing that, that came out of it really was that NSC members said that they were struggling to find an attorney to represent them, that they've reached out to numerous um, attorneys in New Hampshire. Nobody wants to take the case on. Um, you know, there are some questions certainly about the state's case here and the free speech rights of the group, but but no lawyer in New Hampshire at least has, has been willing to step forward to represent the group so, probably. So, yeah. So Todd, what's the attorney general going to do to address hate crimes in, in general in the region? Well, I think they want to prosecute this case and get a civil ruling against the group, which would come with, um, you know, financial penalties. But we're also hearing this sort of broader message from the attorney general in the U.S. attorney's office, and that is they want victims of suspected acts of bias to report these crimes. They want to know when this is happening, and they're stressing that the government is going to take this really seriously. They're educating the public that, um, you know, report this but keep in mind that not every act of, of hate speech is a crime. There are a lot of protections for speech, including hate speech. But but the government wants to know. Uh, they want evidence and they want to take action where they can. That's really been the message coming from law enforcement. And what's the response been so far from communities that have been affected by these, these hate crimes? Well, we've seen, you know, communities largely pull themselves together in the after aftermath of these incidents. So we saw that in Portsmouth last week, you know, a number of events in the community, businesses that were targeted have been um, supported by the public, certainly the Temple, uh, Temple Israel saw an outpouring of support. You know, I spoke with Ali Seku. He's a member of the Islamic Society of Greater Concord. And he said he also appreciated the state's legal action against NSC-131, but, but he pointed out that a lot of folks in positions of power in the state, 
you know, may not fully understand what it's like to be the target of a hate crime. Because they will never be either black or immigrant or Muslim or whatever other hats, because you have to be one of these people to understand how we feel inside and outside. And I think his point there really, Rick, is that, you know, an act of hate can definitely shake the wider community, but it's really, you know, it has an impact. It really shakes the community community of people who are being targeted the most. Absolutely. And HBR's Todd Bookman, thank you. Thank you, Rick. You can find more of his work and all of the stories that we talked about this morning at nhpr.org. And while you're there, we also suggest you check out the New Hampshire News Quiz. It is a quick, fun, and informative way to test your knowledge of the week's news. And we're here next Friday, as always, with a fresh recap, and we love to hear from you as well. I'm Rick Galley. You're listening to NHPR.